If you have your Bibles, we will be in Colossians chapter 3. I have a special sort of affinity for this passage and a special fear of this passage. Um, when I remember when I was first in seminary and I took a preaching class, um, we were given not sermons to write, but we were given rather uh, passages that we would come up with an outline for how we would handle this particular passage. And I hadn't preached much. And this was a passage that was very frustrating to me. I, I recall being frustrated by it because I can read it and I can understand it and, and we can sort of understand it. I can tell people, listen, you need to focus on the things that are above. But I found that in my outline, I just kept saying that. And even thinking through it, I just kept thinking that and not ever really knowing what it was that Paul was getting at. It was very difficult for me. If you were in Colossians 3, let us read what Paul actually says there. Well, just reading the first four verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. May God add his richest blessings to this reading of his word. I tried to figure out what it is that the things that are above are. What, what should we say to those things? How are we going to explain what the things that are above are? And I, I thought, you know, realistically, the things that are above, the things that might concern us in heaven are not terribly different than the things that concern us here on earth. We, we want comfort. We want love. We want security. We are honestly and earnestly concerned about the glory of God. That is no different in heaven than it is here. We want those things. How are those things the things of heaven and not the things of the earth? Those are the things of the earth. As a matter of fact, that's why we need those things. It's because we are here on the earth. So maybe it's not something that the two have in common. Maybe it's something that heaven has and has alone. That would be like angels, but honestly, our depiction of angels has been ruined by people like Raphael, and so they're just like little fat cherubs who wear togas and shoot arrows and play harps and stuff, and no one really wants to think about that. Stuff's creepy, man. So I, we're, not, we're not encouraging you to think about those things, and, and really we don't have a, a biblical picture of what angels look like. We know that they are terrifying, but the Bible kind of leaves it open-ended at that. So how are we supposed to think on the things that are above? And anyways, Paul has already warned us about angel worship or worshiping like angels. It ends up being some sort of mystical thing, right? You, you just think on Christ as, as though if you just sat in your room alone at night and just sort of thought about Jesus that this would sort of pave the way for your life. Somehow, mystically, it would just open up vistas of, of paved roads that you didn't know of before and you would just be able to walk down them. It was difficult to come up with how it was that we were supposed to think on the things that are above. What is that supposed to gain for us? It is clear in this passage that there are two things that are very, very important. The first one is death and the second one is life. You'll know in verse 3, he says, For you have died. Paul has emphasized the death of Christ and the death of you in Christ several times. If you go back to 2.20, he notes that again, there's no reason to go after these regulations, touch, taste, handle. You don't have to go after those things. You don't have to worry about those things because in verse 20, he says, If with Christ you died 
to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you still submit to these regulations? You don't need to submit to those regulations. You've died. Even further back in verses 11, 12, 13, 14, when he talks about baptism, that baptism is a burial with Christ in a burial like his. It's talking about you dying with Christ. That is one of the ways that we're united with him. But then, of course, life is clearly important as well. In verse, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If you've been raised with Christ, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. So what is it about death and what is it about resurrection that allows us to fix our eyes on the things that are above? To kind of, I think, better picture this for you. I was just going to kind of lead you through it, but then I realized the metaphors just started to pile up, and so I just decided that I was going to throw all those metaphors into one big story, which is an allegory, and we'll try and work through this allegory. I have biblical precedent for this. If you have a problem with the allegory, you can take it up with Jesus later. So he did this all the time, so we're going to just follow the pattern of our Lord, and we're going to, we're going to stop someplace first to kind of set some groundwork, and then we're going to have the allegory, and then I'm, hopefully that allegory will help us to understand how it is that we are to seek the things that are above the pit stop that we need to make, we could make it in a number of places, but probably the most prominent one would be Romans 6. We're going to read the last four verses of that chapter, Romans 6, verses 20 through 23. Those verses read like this. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a couple things to mention before we go on to our depiction of what's going on here in chapter 3. First of all, it's clear that freedom here is not the freedom that most people like to consider. When we think of freedom, oftentimes we think of freedom in terms of our allowance to do things, okay? So you are free because you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. You're free because you can go to Baskin-Robbins and there's 31 flavors to choose from and hallelujah, we're free, right? So that's the way that most people, Yogurt Yeti, you can go to Yogurt Yeti and get everything you want. So there's, there's a number of ways that you can consider freedom here, but the freedom that Paul is talking about is quite clearly not freedom to do the things that you want to do, but it's freedom from having to do other things you don't want, okay? So when he says you were free in regards to righteousness, he means you didn't have to do that. You you were capable of not doing righteousness, and now that he talks about being free from sin, he doesn't mean that you're able to kind of dibble-dally in sin, like you're free to do that. What he means is you are now freed from sin. Sin is no longer in dominion over you. Secondly, he says in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That is not a wage that you pay to sin. That is the wage that sin pays to you. We know this because it's the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't pay eternal life to Jesus. It's a gift that he gives to us. So the parallel would be that death is a wage that sin pays to us. So here then is Number one, the allegory. You find yourself in a land 
you find that sin is your owner. He is the slave master over you. And you do what he tells you to do. You do the things of sin because sin reigns over you. You hear one day of a book, some have talked about it, and you find it and you read from it, and it it speaks of a land that is better than yours. It's better than what you have in front of you. It's better than the life that you live. It speaks of of freedom and joy and of happiness and of of blessing. And you read in it that, that there is goodness and life there. And so he says, if you want this, you need to live this way. And this way is kind of tantamount to being free from your master. It's being freed from sin. And so you try to run and you try to leave, but you find out that there's a huge problem, that there are fetters around your neck and around your arms and around your legs, and they are bolted shut, and they are locked and they are tied and the chains are heavy. All the more, it makes your burden higher and higher. Your labor is harder because of the heaviness and the weight of the chains. You know that you are trying to get out of these chains, but you find that there is nothing that will unlock them. There is no lock that there is no lock pick that can get through them. They are bound to you in such a way that you will never be freed from them. <coughs> Finally, when you are taken to be paid your wages, even as a slave, you are going to get wages. You are taken to be paid your wages and you are taken to death and he will kill you. And that is the wage that is going to be paid to you. You see bodies slaughtered around you, and yet you hear that there is one who has come and he has paid your death. He has told death that he will take the wage that was owed to you. And so that wage has been paid. The bodies that you see around you, you realize that their chains have been cut. They have been separated from their entanglement with sin because they are no longer living. That is the way that you get out of sin. If we were to read on in Romans 7, that would become clear. Death is a freedom from it. No longer are you entangled with it. Because this man has taken your death to him, because he has taken the wages that were deserved to you, your chains are cut. You are not unlocked from them. The fetters exist on your your neck, they exist on your hands, they exist on your feet, but your chains are now cut. No longer does death hold you, or excuse me, no longer does your sin hold you as master over you. You are free to go. And soon, a herald shows up and he says, not herald by name, but a herald like somebody else. He could be named Harold. Make him named Harold. Making this allegory up as I go. Um, I'm not actually, but and we're off track and back. So, so Harold shows up and he says, listen, if you want to live, there is death here, but there is eternal life up the mountain. You have to go up the mountain. And you look and you say, listen, man, these chains are heavy. I need these taken off. If I am to ascend a mountain, this is weighing me down. And he says, I know that it will weigh you down. But the Lord of the mountain is the one who has freed you. And everything you need, he will supply. You will get stronger as you go. And he will give you all that you need. You have to make your way back through the muddy fields and the trenches that you worked in. And as you're doing so, you find that people stop. And people are now trying to unlock the locks that are on them. Their chains have been cut, but they're trying to get out of the locks. 
They're saying, listen, we will never get up the mountain. We can never ascend the mountain if these chains are on us. We need to unlock them to get out. And they, they continue to try and use rocks and they pick and they scrape and they claw, but they can't get them off. And they sit there dying, trying to get out of these. And others, now having their chains cut, no longer having a master that tows them around, say, well, we could ascend the mountain. But we've looked around, and there's a lot of people here who had it better than us. Some slaves, yes, they had to work in the pits and in the mire, but there were some slaves who, who were making it all right. They didn't sleep out in the open. They had little thatched roof huts. And their gruel came with a slight tang of honey. And they had other things that we find pleasurable. And so we want to we stay here and experience some of that instead of the hard work of going up the mountain. And the herald says, you cannot stay here. You do not need the locks taken off, for the locks can only be taken off by the one who exists on the mountain. And only when you go there will you be totally free. But you need to ascend. If you stay here, there is death. Now, Paul says this. If you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above. Now he says, where Christ is. So you are to seek the things that are above because that is where your life is. You have been raised with Christ. That is where he is. That is where your life is. So you are to be there. That is where your heart ought to long to be. You are to be with him. Okay? He also says, secondly, that he is seated at the right hand of God. That is not just to give you a description of what to look like. That is a description of power and authority. Why are you to look there? Why are you to see him? Why are you to set your mind on the things that are above? Because he has the power to get you through all of the trials and tribulations of life. It is an uphill climb. It is a slog. It is difficult. But he will get you there because he is the one who sits at the authority of all things. There is nothing in this world that he cannot control. It is his land. It is his country. It is his universe. He controls the laws of physics and biology. He does anything he well pleases. So he says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died. In other words, you haven't actually died. I hope you all realize that, right? Like you're still breathing and living. Some of you, somebody in the back probably passed away a little bit ago, but most of you are still living and you're kicking, right? And so when he says you have died, that's clearly in some way, shape, or form metaphorical, but it's not metaphorical. It's really difficult. In Christ, you've died. Just like in the allegory, you don't actually die. Somebody pays that wage for you, but the results are just like death. You are freed from those things that entrapped you and ensnared you now. Those things of the earth that keep you enchained. The power that you could never break has been loosed for you because you are like a dead one. Paul speaks of this in Galatians as though the world was crucified to him and he to the world. It no longer has an attraction for him. He is now separated. Death is nothing but a separation. It is a separation initially from God, and now the death that is being talked of here is a separation from the world. You have died with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So people will look at you and they will say, where exactly is your life? What kind of life is this that you are living? And you will say, well, I, I am a Christian. I live with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it won't be apparent to them where your life is. 
It won't be apparent to them why you make the choices you do. It will be hidden from them, and frankly, quite often it's hidden from you as well. But Paul gives hope. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him. When Christ is revealed in glory, you too will be revealed in glory. He will remove the chains finally from you. Yes, you have been freed, but it doesn't mean you're not free from the tug of sin. It doesn't mean that you're freed from the weight of this world. There will be a day when that will happen, but that day is not today. Yes, it is a hard journey up the mountain, but there is glory that awaits. So what does this mean for us to keep our minds on the things that are above? The first thing, or second thing, number two, we need to resist worrying about the locks. You need to resist worrying about the locks. Yes, the law says that if you do these things, if you continue to keep in the law, you will receive life and happiness, but it was not describing what you had to do, but what would be done for you. Too many people get overly concerned with making sure that they do the things that are written in the law in order to keep themselves in with Christ, but Christ has freed you, and he will one day take those locks off. Only he can do it. So running back to the law is not the right thing to do. It is not helpful, nor is it good. Listen to how Paul speaks of this in Galatians 5, 2 through 4. The glory of Christ is that he has freed you from the chains. The chains are no longer bounding, binding you to sin. They are no longer binding you and hindering your walk so you can walk freely. If only with pain and sorrow and turmoil, but you can still walk freely. But that only matters if you ascend the hill. Paul says this, Galatians 5, 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Christ has severed those chains. But listen, that severing does you no good if you're going to sit there and fiddle with the locks. It does you no good. You will never ascend the mountain. You will die trying to open things that you cannot open on your own. Thirdly, and much more worrying for us, we are to resist longing for the things below. This sounds quite a bit like several things, one of which is a very famous parable by the name of Pilgrim's Progress. Another one is a very, very famous parable by the name, well, I don't know what the name is, but there's an allegory by C.S. Lewis where he talks about a holiday by the sea, and he talks about the child making mud pies, right? And he says, hey, you know, there's, we're going to go to a holiday in the sea. It's going to be beautiful. We'll have actual pies. And they say, no, no, no. I just want to sit here and play with my mud. What we end up doing is because we lack faith, we lack sight, and we lack vision, we look at the things that are around us and we long for those things instead of the things that are above. They don't, I was right at the very beginning, they don't look much different than the things that are of here. We long for the same things. We long for comfort, for love, for security. We, we long to have our needs met. We long to be recognized. We long to have fellowship and friendship with people. All of those things that we long for are not bad things, but they can be approached in two very different ways. 
Some of you are poor. Money is a huge issue. It's a never-pressing issue for you. Bills come. There are things to buy. There are things that you need. And you wonder, where are you going to go to find these things? How are you going to get the things that you need simply to exist in life, to pay rent, to pay the electricity? Some of you struggle with that. question is, where are you looking to find that need met? How is that need going to be met? Where is your heart really longing for? Because um, honestly, there are ways that you can go about doing this. You can listen to the world, which speaks of cash check places where you can get easy money for high interest very quickly. You can go and you can play the lotto, hoping that you are the one who's going to hit that $40 million jackpot. And then mystically, all of your troubles are going to go away. By the way, speaking of mystically, that's way more mystic than anything we've talked about today. James says this. Speaking of a church that, that might fall into partiality, when one rich brother comes in, they're going to treat him really well because they, they long for his money. They think that he is wealthy and therefore important. And James critiques them and criticizes them and lambasts them. And he says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So there is a need for security. Money is, is nothing but security. There is a need for that security. But your security will ultimately lie either in the mud pits down below or it will be up the hill. Set your minds on the things that are above, the inheritance that will come to you. If you don't pay the electric bill here, people will be there to help, yes. But ultimately, it is that which is better, that which is above, that God ultimately wants you to set your sights on. Some of you lack strength. It's very easy then to run to certain places to find strength, whether it be physical strength and trusting yourself solely and totally to medicine, which will ultimately fail you, even if it helps. Some of you feel like you can find your power and your strength in politics. You feel like you may have won a great victory, or the great victories lie in front of you because you can get the electorate to kind of see things from your vantage point that you can push things through Congress. It's not power, it's foolishness. Instead, we are to find our power in the Spirit of God. We are to find our power in the things that God can provide to us that no one else can. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12. If I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of a surpassing greatness of revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
He says, I was given great things and I could boast about them and I could seem powerful before you for it. But instead, because that lacks any wisdom of God, it lacks looking toward the things that are above, I will speak more of my weaknesses because it demonstrates the grace of Christ in me and through that I am truly powerful. I can accomplish my ends, Paul says, which is making you mature in Christ by looking to those things that are above and not finding my power on the things of the earth. Some of you want fame. See your pride stroked. Ultimately, to receive rewards here for who you are. Matthew says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you go and pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you want the things of the earth, you can get the things of the earth. They're there for the taking. But that's all you get and you lack and you leave behind all of the good things that God wants to give to you. You play with mud pies and you leave the holiday by the sea alone. Ultimately, if we long for that which is above, we can endure the loss of all things. Because these aren't the things we seek anyway. Do you want to be sort of world-proof? There is nothing in your life that cannot be snatched away from you in a second. Your life, your health, your money, all of it's gone. It's gone. So you seek the things of the world. Go, seek, find, have at it. There will one day, all of it will be taken away from you. Paul says this in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, then now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. He, he had nothing. He was not only in prison, but he was falsely imprisoned. And he stayed falsely imprisoned. These aren't, you know, six by 11 rooms with cable TV and all that good stuff. This is not a great prison that Paul is likely in at this point in time. And he says in verse 11, I am not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That doesn't mean that you can just go out and do anything, Right? It means this, I can withstand everything. There's nothing that can be thrown at me that will dislodge me. Nothing can be taken away from me that I can't do without. Nothing can be given to me that I actually need. 
because I'm not looking at the things of the world. I'm not looking at the parchments that you sent me. I'm not looking at my need for freedom. I'm not looking at my need for food. All these things will be given to me, and if they're not given to me, they will eventually in heaven. I have my sights set on heaven, and therefore I won't ever dirty myself with the world because I won't lust and long for the things of the world that perish. As Paul says back in chapter 2 of Colossians, that perish as ye use them. They're done. They waste away. He says there's a better way to live. You live in such a way that you look for the things that are above where they will never be taken away from you. Do not long for the things of the world. Longing for them will only lead to destruction because they will all be taken from you. If Satan doesn't take them from you, God will. And rightfully so. So that you might see the glory of him who sits on the throne above. In just a few minutes, we will go into the fellowship hall and we will have thanksgiving with one another. And we indeed will have both the Christian thanksgiving and the American thanksgiving beautifully. The Christian thanksgiving and the breaking of bread and the celebrating of the Lord's Supper where we do what Paul has told us to do. We take in his death, his broken body and his spilled blood and we take it. It is ours. We literally physically put it into our mouth and we swallow it and it becomes part of us. It is his death that we enter into so that we might be separated from all of the things of the world. For while you are alive in the world, you long for the things of the world. But if you have died in Christ, you long for things that are different. You long for the things that are above and you are no longer purchasing your whole life based upon the things of the world. Yes, you need to live in the world but you are no longer of it. Your life is hid with Christ on high. By taking in his body and by taking in his blood, we not only proclaim his death until he comes to the outside world, we proclaim it to ourselves. That we have been crucified with Christ and therefore the world is dead to us and we to it and we seek the better things that are above. Let us pray. my God how we waste ourselves here we do not deny the good things that you have given to us even those good things that are found in the world we know that food and drink are given to us for our pleasure we know that art and beauty are given to us for our pleasure but Father let us never confuse the pleasures of this world for the ultimate pleasure that is there. These things are not to satisfy us, but to whet our appetites for that which is to come. When we feast in this world, it is not to be satisfied by that feast, but it is to remind us that there is a greater feast which is to come. When we receive joy and happiness in this world, it is not that we might be satisfied with that joy and that happiness, but that we might long for a better and more secure joy and happiness, which is with you forever and ever. So, Father, we are reminded this morning of your glory and your goodness in all things. We ask that you will continue to work in us, to strengthen us for that journey. For it is difficult, the road is narrow and difficult that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Father, let us be the few. 
for our good. For we are called by your name. For your glory. So that you will be shown to be better than all things. And ultimately, for those who are lost and dying, that they might see your glory in us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.